Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Turn now to Matthew 4, where we see the beginning of his public ministry. Matthew chapter 4, hear God's word as we prepare to confess our sins. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the first Sunday in the season of Lent, a 40-day season of preparation for Easter, when we remember Jesus' ministry of self-denial here on earth for us. And we seek to follow Jesus likewise in this season, as always. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Satan seeks to derail the whole thing. This is one of his tricks. When you are about to make a fresh start, when you're about to make an important change for the better, Satan will often tempt us in greater strength so that you never actually get started. This is what he does with Jesus here, attempts to do. I believe that it was uh, Sun Tzu in The Art of War who said, the first rule is to keep your enemy from fighting you if you can. Never let him come to the battlefield and win at the negotiating table. Win some other way. That's really what Satan is trying to do here. Our Westminster Confession tells us with the scriptures that we are engaged in an all-comprehensive and irreconcilable war with evil for Christ. And Satan tries to get us to lay down our weapons. That's what he does with Jesus at the very beginning. Serve yourself instead of God. I'll give you power and glory if you serve me instead of God, and it'll be a lot easier. No cross involved. But we need to thank God that Jesus resisted him and stayed faithful to the Father for our sakes. And we also need to confess that we have not always done so. So let's confess our sins before Almighty God. I encourage you to kneel if you are able. first 12 verses. I thought that since we had left off in the middle of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John series, that we would pick that up again for the season of Lent. So let's read uh, John 9, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's inerrant word. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva 
Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Thus far the reading of God's word. And he had his blessing to it this morning. It may seem like a strange place to stop, right in the middle, but there's so much more in the chapter that I didn't want to take on too much at once this week. I want to start this morning by talking about uh, grammar. How many of you kids have done any diagramming of sentences in grammar? That's where I'm starting this morning, and hopefully I'll make a connection soon that you'll see. So consider, we've been reading this book where there's a student in junior high who's doing this diagramming sentences, and the teacher would... uh, tailor it to how to the abilities of the students. You know, there's some students in the class who they can only handle a short sentence. You know, the girl walked home. But then there's the, the more gifted students, and the teacher gives the, a Shakespearean sentence to the, to a, the more gifted student to, to uh, diagram. Uh, so uh, the connection here is a Matthew Henry quote. What we're looking at in John chapter 9 is a hard providence. This man born blind... Blind from birth, and as we'll see later in the chapter, he's an adult, he's of age now. He's been blind for at least 20 years. That's a hard providence. And Matthew Henry has a wonderful sentence about this. He says this, Sentences in the book of Providence are sometimes long. (laughs) Sentences are sometimes long. So when you have to diagram the long sentence, it takes a lot of figuring out what's going on. Or, or you, there's the joke, too, about in certain languages, the verb comes way at the end, and you've got 50 syllables before you get to the verb, so you don't even know what it's saying until you get to the very end. That's what Matthew Henry's talking about. There are long sentences in, the, in our lives where we're in the middle of a phrase, and we don't know exactly what's being said yet. But we'll come to the end, and, and we'll understand. That's what Matthew Henry's saying. That's this man who's been blind from birth and now is an adult. So the theme this morning is that our trials, our sufferings, are not always because of sin, but they do always point us to Christ, the light of the world. Uh, So with that uh, introduction, uh, I also realize we're diving back into John here, and we're actually in the middle of a a section that's all kind of one story. So I want to review John. So if you have your Bibles uh, with you, turn to John chapter 1. Just, just, just page through up to where we are. Take a, a quick tour and see where we've been. The first eight chapters that we've already uh, gone through last summer, roughly, uh, they divide pretty evenly. The first four chapters of John are all about Jesus' ministry being set out on, his, on its own. And then chapters 5 through 8, you have opposition from the Jews as he keeps teaching. So chapter 1 here, you see the Word made flesh. You see the, the John call him the Lamb of God. Chapter 2, Jesus uh, turns water to wine. He cleanses the temple. Chapter 3, he meets with Nicodemus and says that we must be born again. 
chapter 4, he meets with a Samaritan woman at the well. And we learn there that Jesus is not just for Jews. He's the Savior of the world, all nations, even Samaritans. Uh, so that's, it's a very open message in that way, chapter 4. Chapter 5 through 7, he's healing. He's feeding 5,000. He walks on water. But in the midst of all that, uh, his harder teachings send many away. And the leaders reject him for healing on the Sabbath. His own brothers don't believe in him in chapter 7, we see. So there's increasing opposition. And that really comes to a climax in chapter 8, where you have that long, intense argument. We, we sometimes forget how, how um, escalated it gets. You know, at, at the very end of it, Jesus, uh, they're saying that Jesus has a demon. And Jesus is saying to them, you are sons of the devil. It's, it's become a complete uh, loggerhead uh, you're the evil one, no, you're the evil one, kind of discussion, where Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, I am. He's making the highest claims possible, and they're uh, accusing him of the worst thing possible. They pick up stones to throw at him, and Jesus uh, passes by. He goes out of the temple, and it's a bit obscured in the ESV, I see, but the last verse of chapter 8, he went out, uh, that word is the same as the first verse of chapter 9, as he passed by. Same word. So there's a strong connection between uh, chapter 8, the end, and chapter 9, the beginning. That's why I wanted to spend some time with the context there. Uh, so th this is all part of the same story. So as Jesus passes by, as he, as he uh, eludes their attempted stoning, uh, he passes by this man who's blind from birth. And so here we come to the hard providence. Uh, this blind man is, is a huge contrast with the hostile Jews in, the, in chapter 8. They couldn't see who Jesus really was. And so he hides himself from them. Now we encounter a man who can't see at all. And Jesus gives him sight. So John's making this point with, with the passed by at the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9. So the, the physically well-off rulers are spiritually blind. While this physically blind man will come to see Jesus. That's the contrast there. And, and John and the New Testament does this all the time. The, the, the well-off uh, ruling Israelites who should have known better, who have, have studied the word day after day after day for centuries, miss Jesus. But the Samaritan, the woman, the Gentile, they, they're flocking to Jesus. The blind, the, the beggars. It's, it's an amazing story, and God loves to write that kind of story. The man's physical condition is meant to show us our spiritual one. We are born blind to God and to his truth. The Bible says that we are groping about for him. That's how Paul uh, tells it to the Greek philosophers. We're, we're groping about in the dark, like a blind person might, looking for his chair. That we're looking for God, we're looking for the truth, but we can't get there. We're born with this blindness from day one. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, the old colonial saying went. So we're born into that state. But the result of the fall is spiritual death. We can no longer see God. We can no longer love him or trust him. But even though we can't, Jesus sees us. And he gives us eyes to see him. That's what happens to this man. Now, when we see hard providences like this, uh, we can't assume every tragedy has a specific link to a specific sin. That's the disciples' uh, assumption, and Jesus corrects it right away. Who sinned? This man or his parents? 
Talk about a false dichotomy. If you didn't know your logic, we've done some logic with our kids. Here's, a, here's some bifurcation for you, a, a, a false dichotomy. Which, which, who sinned, this one or this one? Well, maybe there's a third option you haven't thought about. And Jesus points that out. So when we hear of uniquely horrible disasters, we tend to think that the victims were uniquely horrible. It's just a natural thing that happens to us. Man, what did they do? That, that, and Jesus tells us, no, that's not true. Luke 13, we see that. They, and the people are reading the newspaper, and they're bringing the headlines to Jesus. Look at the, these tower, this tower fell on these 18 people, just killed them on the spot. What do you do with that? What we're trying to do when we see accidents or disasters or injuries, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to explain it. And that's a good thing. That's, there's a God-instilled sense there because we know God is a God of order. God's not a God of, who just brings senseless, random things into the world. Things do not happen by accident. But we aren't God to be able to explain it either. And so Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. There's a little, just an aside there. Be careful not to pull verses out of context or to apply things woodenly. You, you can isolate that, that sentence and say, look, Jesus says this guy never sinned. Right? Well, he's, he's applying that to the, the context here of the cause. The, the disciples are saying there's a cause for, uh, for their sin. So be careful to keep things in context like that. Now, the Bible does give us some guidance here. Often, one of my pet peeves today is that we, we so recoil from the idea of uh, applying specific sins to specific disasters that, that we want to get as far away from that as possible. And we wind up saying, no, there's, there's no cause, there's no reason. I mean, we, we don't know why this happened. We have no idea. When the Bible actually gives us some guidance in, in God's providence on this. So let's consider three things. First, it's not because there were sinners. I'm getting that from Luke 13, that Jesus says that. So it's not that this man born blind from birth was a worse sinner, or his parents were worse sinners. And notice that this keeps us sober and vigilant about the effects of sin, without looking down on others for being worse than us. Right? It's, it's a natural thing that wells up in us when we consider a man who's born blind from birth to, to take pity on him. And then that's, that's good. There's a compassionate uh, side of our nature there. But that gets distorted sometimes if, we, if that compassion turns to uh, a patronizing or a condescending, oh, too bad, I'm, he's just lesser in God's sight or he's done something. It's not that, right? He, he is not a worse sinner, even if we want to take compassion on him. So uh, that's one thing. It, the, 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 when this happens, we don't say, well, they're worse sinners. Uh, the second thing is that God often brings these things into our lives to strengthen our faith. Uh, in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, we see that, that God brings trials to us to test our faith. And, and then when we come through the trial, we still have our faith. It's been tested as gold. And that's an encouragement. That's a paraphrase of 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. So that's another reason why God may bring trials into our lives, to strengthen our faith. We also can't deny, as part of that, that God does use hardship to warn us, or to teach us, or to rebuke us. That does happen. He gave, he gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, some kind of physical suffering or debility, so that Paul wouldn't get proud. That's an example of that. And third, even... Uh, 
a reason why God may bring trouble is, is to warn us, to, to rebuke us. Uh, he does this with David, with uh, Bathsheba. David's child with Bathsheba dies. Uh, and God uh, is in the process of teaching and correcting us. So when we go through hard times, it occurs to the godly, sensitive soul, maybe God's trying to get my attention. Maybe he's trying to point me to something I need to change in my life. And that's not a bad instinct for us to do when we're considering our own trials and our own sins. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, pain is God's megaphone. Sometimes he's getting our attention. God's not an angry and self-centered father who spanks us, who gives us troubles arbitrarily or out of anger or retaliation. God doesn't do that. But, but neither does he leave us on our own when we're going astray. He, he brings things into our lives, either good things or difficult things, to help us get back on the path. He has many ways to do that. That's why we read from Jeremiah 31. It says God is a father to Israel. This is all about the fatherhood of God. He will bring us back to, uh, to uh, our land. He will, however blind or weak we are, he'll make us to walk in his ways again. That's Isaiah. That's Jeremiah. It's fundamental to fatherhood, giving healthy and healing direction to children in God's ways. So uh, all of these are reasons why God may give us difficulties. But what we should avoid doing is trying to do that for God in the lives of others when they're going through suffering. We have to be careful of that. That's what the disciples kind of inject. Hey, probably in this guy's hearing, right? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's like this? Whoa, that's a whole other animal, right? To, to inject our own uh, opinions or ideas about somebody else's condition. Uh, remember Job's counselors, they do this. They speak a lot of truth. There's a lot of truth in the book of Job, even from the counselors. No man can stand before God blameless. Yes. If it weren't for sin, there wouldn't be suffering in the world. Yes. But that doesn't mean we draw specific conclusions for people in their circumstance. Boy, Job, you must have been stingy or harsh or bitter in your heart toward God for him to do this to you. No, that, that's, that doesn't follow. Again, the problem isn't the actual truth of this. God may be getting their attention. It wasn't the case for Job. It wasn't the case for this man. But it may be for others. But the problem is other people drawing conclusions about your spiritual condition from your suffering. You can't, can't do that. So again, uh, there are reasons why. Uh, and in this case, Jesus rejects this in verse 3. This man was born blind this way for one main reason. To reveal the work of God. To reveal the work of God. And that's a key for us in our trials. When we see suffering in someone's life, we think all kinds of things. Right? Pity at their problems. Relief that it isn't us, if we're honest. Right? Wondering whose fault it is. All kinds of thoughts come into our heads. They're all natural, understandable responses. But the word of God corrects us. Make your first thought... I wonder what God's doing here. I wonder what God is doing here. This man was born blind to reveal the work of God, that the work of God might be displayed, the ESV puts it. So, our trials and our sufferings, this is our theme. They're not always because of sin, but they do always point us to Christ, the light of the world. So, when someone discovers that they have cancer, 
And they make it their life's work to fight it, to beat it, to convince themselves that they have the strength. My heart kind of sinks when, when there's that kind of attitude about it. It's not a wrong attitude in, in total, but you're missing the main point. right? God gave, that, God gave Paul that thorn so that Paul would know his own weakness. Not so that he would gin up strength in himself to fight the disease. The point is to display the work of God, not to show how strong you are, right? To display the work of God. So Jesus says in verse 5 we're up to then, or verse 4, we have to work the works of him who sent us while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. There it is again. Jesus had said he's the light of the world in the last chapter as well. So Jesus turns the focus to himself. And this is, again, an amazing thing. It's right up there with the claims of Jesus that he's the light of the world, that before Abraham was, I am. I mean, how many of us, if you had a doctor come in and he's working to heal a man born blind, would turn the focus to himself, to the doctor? You don't do that. You're trying to help the person who's in need. But because of the greatness of Jesus, he turns the focus to himself. And the text does this too, as we'll see. It's day when Jesus is here. When he goes to the cross, it's going to go dark and night has come. And my time for helping like this will be past. Make the most of your opportunities. That's what Jesus is saying here that he's doing. Don't procrastinate. Keep the story in mind again. Remember, it's from, I think, the middle of chapter 7, where Jesus says to his brothers, I'm not going up to the feast yet. And then they go, and then he comes later. We're still in that same story. There's been all kinds of things. The woman caught in adultery, Jesus saying he's the light of the world, all kinds of teaching, the long argument. It's all part of this same story. I mean, given all of that, Jesus could easily have just called it a day at this point. right? They just tried to stone him. <laughs> he's eluded that. I mean, he could walk past this man and say, he'll be here tomorrow. I'll come back. But no. Take the most of every opportunity. Night's going to come, and I need to do all I can now. So Jesus does good while he's there. He's the light of the world. He brings light to a blind man's eyes. He turns to heal this man, verse 6. And what a strange method, right? He spits on the ground, makes mud, smears the mud on the guy's eyes. This reminds us, I think it reminds us greatly of uh, Elijah, or Elisha it is, when he heals uh, uh, Naaman in the Jordan. And the guy's like, what? You want me to go wash in the Jordan? The Jordan is way muddier and dirtier than my clean rivers back in Assyria. So he won't do it. He has to be convinced that by his servant to do it. The method of God's healing in our lives sometimes mystifies us. And we have to be careful not to assume God needs to heal me this way. Healing looks like this. Well, maybe it's going to look a little bit different. And we need to follow the Lord's leading and what that's like. I think, that, theologically, I think that the clay is a reference to Genesis 2, uh, where God uh, forms the dirt out of the, the ground, and he makes man that way. We're, we're dirt men. We're made out of the earth. 
according to Genesis 2. And I think there's a theological point John's making that we, we need a redo here. We, we need a new earth. And in Jesus' healing of this man, uh, uh, Jesus shows us a new creation being formed. But again, God's going to use different ways to heal us. Maybe through the words of a friend, maybe a song on the radio, maybe the doctor. There's all kinds of ways that God brings about healing in our lives. He sends the man to the pool of Salome, which means sent, uh, probably because Jesus was sent. He's been talking about being sent by the Father, and he sends us to obey him. There might even be a connection to the, the gospel uh, in Luke 13 that we read, because the, the, the 18 that died, they, the Tower of Salome fell on them. Same word. Uh, I don't know if there's a, a connection there or not. But the, the, he goes to the, tower, the pool of Salome. And he comes back seeing, verse 7. And here's the understated point. This whole text is, is about if the man has sinned and who Jesus is and what he's doing. And we get like five words of the actual healing. The washing, the going to the pool, lots about that. And then like three words came back seeing. In the Greek, it's just one word. The last word of the paragraph, just one thing. It's, it's really understated. Because this story is not about this man's sight as much it is, as it is about Jesus. The reason he was blind, the reason he went through all this trouble, was to display the work of God. And that, that's all backwards for us, because to us, the main thing is the, the physical healing. But that's going to come in the end, regardless, when God restores all things. But he brings healing, he brings trouble, whichever it is, in the midst of our lives, uh, to display the work of God. And that's what happens in the rest of, whole rest of this chapter. The, the, the whole discussion, verses 8 through 41, it's all about, well, is this the same guy? Uh, the rulers want to find Jesus. What are you going to do about this? The main point is not that the man be, is seeing. That's the instigator. That's what draws everybody's attention. It's quite remarkable. So uh, this man uh, comes back seeing. A couple other points and then we'll quit. Uh, first, uh, J.C. Ryle makes this point, and it's very good. Uh, Ryle is an excellent uh, Anglican bishop, wrote uh, commentaries on the Gospels that I've been reading. Here's his point. This man has been blind for at least 20 years. Uh, consider the long-term trials at this point. In an instant, he sees. Now, this, this makes us hopeful for our own situations, however hopeless it feels, however long your trial has been going on. And maybe for some of you, it's been 20 years. Do you have those family members, those co-workers who just haven't responded uh, to your nudges in God's direction for 10 years, for 20 years? Some of us do. And, and this text tells us, don't give up hope. When people get hardened in their sins and bad habits of thinking and acting over many years' time, that does not tie God's hands at all. It looks hopeless to us. But it doesn't tie God's hands. Here Jesus walks into this man's life, and in five minutes, he's seeing. Astounding. I was reading in my devotions just last night and came across this as I was considering this. Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus, where Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, 
right? And you talk about a trial that's gone on for a while. Israel in Egypt for, I think it's 400 years, something like 400 years. And Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, right? And what's the first thing that happens? It gets worse, not better, right? Pharaoh makes them make bricks without straw. Sometimes when God's about to do a major thing, it gets worse short term, not better. And this, and this verse just caught me. It's astounding. Exodus 6, verses 9, and then verse 30. Israel did not listen to Moses. In other words, Moses had gone back to Israel and said, God says it's going to be okay. I know you've got to make bricks without straw now for a little while, but God's still going to save us. And the response, they don't listen to Moses. Israel did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit. That just struck me. After our long, hard trials, we can have such a a crushed spirit. But you know what? That doesn't stop God either. Because he saved Israel from Egypt. And, And Moses himself, at the end of that chapter, Moses said to the Lord, How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses had given up hope. He still went on. He went back to Pharaoh. That's the miraculous thing. So, this man born blind for 20 years, Jesus steps in and heals in a moment, restores. Doesn't matter how broken in spirit he was. Doesn't matter the, rule, the opposition of others around him. Jesus will save whom he wants to save. He will restore us. But where is he? Verses 8 through 12. Uh, this, and this begins the rest of the chapter, but let's just get a glimpse before we stop. Uh, Something interesting I've noticed here is that this man has not yet seen Jesus physically, right? He, the man is blind. Jesus puts the mud on him. He can't see yet. And then Jesus sends him to the pool of Siloam, which I find kind of odd. Like, yeah, go to the pool. He can't see yet. So the man's groping his way to the pool. Jesus just sends him to go. And so he gets to the pool, washes, and now he can see, but Jesus isn't there. So he knows that it's Jesus who saved him, but he hasn't seen him yet. Very fascinating. And he doesn't see him until later in the chapter. He sees all his neighbors and people where he used to beg first. It's like, are you that same guy? You're, you can't be the same guy. You're seeing. That can't be. You, you look like him. Are you a twin brother? What's going on? He says, no, it's me. It's me. So the whole rest of the chapter is all about this guy testifying to what Jesus has done in his life. In the midst of opposition, people who don't want to believe it, that's what this chapter is about. And we'll come to that more next time. But it reminds me of the demon-possessed man, when Jesus sends the demons into the pigs, you know? And the man, at the end of that story, the man, it says the man wanted to come with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, don't come with me, go home. And tell him what God has done for you. Same kind of thing. The cured man wants to go with Jesus. Jesus doesn't let him. In so many ways, it's better for us to be physically apart from Jesus, but telling our friends and neighbors about him, what Jesus is doing in our lives. That's the idea. Well, to wrap up, the center of this passage is the light of the world, who Jesus is. Without him, there is no light. There's no vision. There's no eye to see anything. We're lost in the darkness. We're lost in sin apart from him. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said a chapter or two earlier. 
So come to Jesus, the light of the world. Let him restore your sight. Our trials, our sufferings are not always because of sin, but they do always point us to Christ, the light of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that in your light we see light. That you have uh, given us your word, that it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Lord, let us turn to this word daily, uh, this afternoon, and see you and hear you speak in our lives once again. Thank you for restoring our vision, at least partially, uh, to see you uh, partially for who you are, and to see you enough to come to you in faith and trust, to trust you with our lives. Lord, help us to deepen that trust more and more. There are so many ways in which we are fearful, we are anxious, that we see headlines, we uh, feel uh, troubles in our own uh, families or bodies. Uh, Lord, you are the great physician. You are the one who restores and sets all things right. And you give us uh, faith and strength uh, for trials until then. Lord, let us trust you. You are the light of the world. Thank you for giving us light. We pray in the name of Jesus, uh, the ever-living light. And as we sing... Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The psalm reminds us that God is our father, and fathers provide tables for their families. They feed bodies, they heal souls. Fathers turn their hearts toward their children. They notice their needs. As a father pities his children, the Lord pities us. It's common for us to say when we're going through trouble, I don't want your pity, I don't need your charity. It's usually a point of pride or embarrassment for us that does this. We want to be strong enough to manage on our own. But we need the pity of a heavenly father. We need to know our frame is frail. We are only dust. We need his healing. We need his feeding. And so just as Jesus sent the man to the pool called Sent, he sends us to the means of grace, to the word preached, to the sacraments, to fellowship with God in prayer, to fellowship with his people here. He sends you to meet the light of the world. He sends you to this table for healing. He forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. Let's receive Christ and rest on him alone for our salvation today. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, 
please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.